Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm privileged to have many excellent, knowledgeable, and inspirational people as my guests for Spirit in Action, but I think you'll find that today's visit with Carl Fields will be among the best. Carl is a winner when so much of his life could have set him up to be a loser in society's match-off. When still young and feeling his oats, Carl got in a shoot-off with police, and though no one got hurt, it was enough to send him to prison for 16 years. It's not a new story, a black man locked away in prison, but the twist to this story is what Carl learned about himself while there and how he equipped himself during that time for a brighter future, not just for himself, but for so many people dragged down by circumstances and racism. Carl Fields works with the Racine Interfaith Coalition, EXPO, an ex-prisoners organization, with Restoring Our Communities as part of the statewide organization called Wisdom, and with St. Luke's Episcopal Hospitality Center for the Homeless. We're headed today down to the city of Racine to talk via Zoom with Carl Fields. Carl, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. You just came off of a very busy day. What's at the top of the work pile for Carl Fields right now? Top of the day today would definitely be preparation for Expo's event tomorrow. You know, I'm a community organizer. You know, I'm a directly impacted person. And I work for a group called Ex-Incarcerated People Organizer. We have an online virtual thing going tomorrow. It's called, Does Governor Evers Care About Incarcerated People? My hands are pretty full because I'll be uh, moderating that tomorrow. So, you know, virtual or not, it's work. And to juggle some good questions and, you know, coax some good answers out of people, you know, get people to participate and be a part of that. It's a big deal. It's, it's challenging, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty sure that there are some of our listeners who might not know what Expo is. That's E-X-P-O. Explain about ex-incarcerated people organizing. You know, I myself, as a formerly incarcerated person, I spent uh, 16 years in prison. And while I was there, I was trying to get as active as I possibly could. I I learned about Expo and uh, people like myself who've been through the system, who have conviction histories, working both to help each other in that peer support kind of way and to change policies within the system by just paying attention, watching news, reading the paper. And Expo is connected to the statewide umbrella group called Wisdom, which is a coalition of churches and congregations and faith-based groups all doing the work around the state. This faith-based group started a criminal justice campaign, which is called Restoring Our Communities. And out of that Restoring Our Communities campaign came the organization of Expo, because there would be no more doing this work, quote unquote, for them without them. People who've experienced this, people who are still living this, where's their particular platform that works for them in the way that they needed to with them leading the charge in that. And so the criminal justice campaign that Wisdom started and is continues to be a part of, the focus was that it would be led by directly impacted people like myself. And out of that directly came our own platform entirely, which is Expo. And we've been in existence and operational for about five years now, a little more. How big of an organization is it? Well, we have a couple of hundred people and, and how we like to explain it pretty much is that, you know, I look at Expo overall as having about 300 plus people who are attached to our organization overall. Out of that organization, we have probably about a little less than 100 people that are active members and active participants who are directly impacted people. 
And out of that, we get a core group of about 50 people all around the state who are like myself, whether they are on staff or not. They're driven by what it takes to do this work because crimes committed or not, poor choices being part of this or not, injustices happen throughout the system at every level. And those injustices have racial disparities all over them. One of the things we want is for the system to work well if the system is to continue to exist. But we certainly want for there to be some clarity and some honesty around the fact that we spend way too much on a system that does not give any sort of bang for one's buck, looking at it from a citizen perspective. Why does that continue to be okay? You know, shaping that kind of narrative from people who have been there and done that has some real sway to it, has some real power to it. Because my story and my truth can't be explained away. I, I know when inaccuracies are coming up. I know where the gaps are when politicians and some officials try to explain this is how the system works from beginning to end. And I'm like, nope, you just named a situation that has six gaps to it. And all of those gaps, people fall to the bottom. Money falls to the bottom, resources get wasted, and public safety does not come out of that scenario that one usually tries to explain to the uninformed. And as a result, lives get lost. Time gets lost and more generational trauma and generational hurt continues to be perpetuated by society. That has systemic oppression written all over it. I understand that Expo is not specifically for blacks who have been prisoners. It's for all races. If you've been incarcerated and you're no longer incarcerated, you could be part of Expo, right? That's correct. Yeah, but I understand that Wisconsin has the highest rate of incarceration of black males in the nation. Right. It tends to go back and forth between number one and number three. Who are the other bad guys? Oklahoma is a terrible uh, culprit as well. They, I mean, Wisconsin and Oklahoma tend to go back and forth for number one and two slot pretty often. Okay. So let's talk about your situation. I'm sure people are very curious. And, you know, I actually hesitate to bring this up because I don't want to be just providing spectacle. That's not what we need in our world. But there are a lot of people who are very attached to... You're a felon, and so you're a scary person. And you can't ever remedy that because you are now officially a bad person. Sure, society won't allow for that, of course. Tell us about your case, because you're not a bad guy. You're actually one of the best guys I can think of, right? Because <laughs> you're doing the work. You faced your bad, and you turned it around to make it something good. That's what I call a super win for society. Right. I can certainly appreciate that. I would wish that that kind of sentiment exists. In all of society, it doesn't. The sentiment you mentioned that, you know, as a quote unquote felon, I'm a person who shouldn't be dealt with, who can't be dealt with. I certainly can't appreciate the different options that society has to offer because felony status means second class citizenship, no doubt. As an individual, I went to prison back in the year 2000. I had an encounter with the police and it was pretty serious and it was hectic. And I ended up shooting at them and they shot back in response to that. And it was a back and forth thing for a couple of minutes. Bullets were exchanged. No one was hurt from the scenario, but a lot of neighbors were thrown off. Lives changed. A lot of hurt to go around. My choices and my, you know, my bad options that I thought were good options changed people's lives. And I went to prison for a long time because of that. And because of that, I had a long time to sit and think about it, what it took and what I took from society in those poor choices. As a response to that, I realized off top, one, I had an anger problem, which is not something I necessarily knew, but I also embraced the fact that I needed to do something else. And if I couldn't wake up to making important choices in hard moments, 
then that means I had some some blocks within my own thought process that I needed to get to the root of, or I would never get my life back. I would never get home. And if I did, I'd come right back to prison because some sort of explosive moment would take me right back. So on that note, I did a lot of cognitive defect work on myself. You know, I learned that my thought process needed some clarity to it. Once I got a handle on that for myself, I started doing it with my peers. I, you know, I became a tutor with the cognitive development and intervention programs. I got the bug with that. I learned a lot about uh, restorative justice principles and practices. And then, you know, my heart just broke wide open like, wow, this is what society's missing right here. The ability for all of society to get its needs met. And so I started learning, you know, on that college level about root cause analysis and about how uh, social ills are criminalized. And when you start criminalizing poverty and when you start sectioning off neighborhoods and heavily policing them and addressing not what caused their neighborhood to look the way it does, but only want to address the choices that they make based on their scenario, then of course you're going to get heavy police neighborhoods. You're going to get convictions up the wazoo. You're going to get people in prison who look like me because systemically, neighborhoods like mine have always been deprived of resources. And they currently continue to be deprived of resources and the ability to make their way out of their situation because we have this post-racial society view when you look at neighborhoods that look like where I grew up, that had that certain socioeconomic background. And when I got to learn all this, I was like, oh my God, I fit right into this. As an individual, I felt like the choices of selling drugs, I felt like the choices of doing something to get by for today came to me as some of my only options. They weren't my only options, but all of the options that everyday society sees and knows about, none of those options had red carpets rolled out for me. And when I tried to reach for that as a young black male, I was always shunned or I was always made to feel like those spaces, which public spaces, school spaces tend to be white spaces by, by default. Those spaces were not made for me. And when I walk into spaces like that, even now, as a, as, even as a grown man with myself and my pre emotional IQ pretty high, I still get that sense of typical spaces are default white spaces and I have to find a way to fit into them. It was devastating for me as a, you know, as a young man 20 years ago. Today, you know, I come pretty armored up and ready to go to do the work, you know, with dignity and respect. I figure if you had this wisdom 20 years ago, you wouldn't have taken that road, right? But I'm wondering if the work that you're doing today, can you see yourself providing it to the young people of today, uh, maybe to yourself 20 years ago, providing to them the resources so that they're not going to go down that bad path? Do you see that as being possible or likely? I mean, is it what you're working on? Oh, absolutely. It, it certainly is quite a bit of what we're working towards with Expo. Expo is uh, certainly what we refer to as an advocacy group. And, you know, our focus is policy change off top because policy change is what produces the biggest amount of change for the most amount of people. But the work that's in the heart of the community is doing the one-to-one conversations and the one-to-one peer support work. And that has to very much be a part of all this as well. And so I always explain Expo as being part peer support, part civic engagement. It has to be that for individuals like myself, because some of us, men and women, have never been able to engage in the public space to begin with. So there is no coming back into society for some of us. For some of us, it's coming to society for the very first time and learning how to do that in a way that works well for us and to be genuinely black or be genuinely brown as we do so. 
because the default way of doing business, the default way of approaching school, the default way of approaching life has a, a white view to it. And the average white person doesn't see that. And that's where the conversation about white supremacy comes in, because any anybody who culturally approaches these normal everyday things from a different perspective with a cultural slant to it automatically seems to be bucking the system or seems to not be going along to get along. And that creates a, a completely different conversation because then we start talking with our white allies about privilege, about how privilege is uh, built into the fabric of what we know. It also puts a slight on anybody who's not white to either conform or be prepared to swim against the tide. I do think there's a problem with addressing white supremacy. White supremacy is an evil thing. As far as I'm concerned, white privilege is a mistaken thing frequently. It's perhaps willful blindness frequently. But equating the two, white supremacy and white privilege, is not right. White privilege is a fact, and I know that it's a fact, right? And people who are comfortable in their white privilege do not generally feel motivated to correct it. It's like, hey, I'm just being me. Right. The hard phrase is the, the willful ignorance of it. There are a lot of there are a lot of white people that I know, a lot of white allies that I have and I know who know privilege is a real thing, but can't come to terms with how to fix it because fixing it or addressing it to them translates to mean giving up something, giving up space, giving up ability, giving up economics, you name it. And it's like this isn't a, in order for me to have you must not have. This is not a zero sum game kind of a conversation. That's a hard conversation to have with most people, even people who are with us in this struggle and in this fight, who acknowledge wholeheartedly that there's something wrong with the numbers when there's a racial disparity to every category that has something progressive involved. When we're talking economics, when we're talking employment, we're talking home ownership, we're talking college degrees, all these things have a racial disparity of a number built into them. And they have had that for some time. I've seen that explained away as, well, something's wrong with those people because they have the ability to get all of these things and they're not reaching for them. And it's like the, what we value is based on legacy. It's based on the giving of cash, the giving of resources, the giving of opportunities to your kids and to the next generation. When we talk about generational poverty, we got to go back to when all the government put these systems in place to move entire sloughs of communities out of poverty. Black people were left behind deliberately by policy when these things happened in home ownership during the World War era, during the redlining era, during the, the policy change around schools and the ability to get into schools. I mean, you name it, the evidence is there. For me, the willful ignorance comes in when we state those numbers. A lot of people's response is, well, that was in the past, get over it. But then these are the same people that will tell you, I went to the same college that my great grandfather went to. You know what I mean? A friend of mine told me that he went to a college that his great, great grandfather went to and helped build. I thought to myself, oh, my God, my great, great grandfather was connected to slave life and did sharecropping and has stories of lynching and has stories of horrors in their background. Like I grew up with this historical pain on my heart that I knew not what to do with. But I knew I'd have to find a way to protect myself. And I knew that by default, the system had a way of treating me differently. That right there is just a conversation that needs a reckoning. But what we do, we come together because I, I feel like in the work we do, both with Expo, both the work that I do at the hospitality center, because, you know, it's a day shelter that we feed people there with, you know, another one of my passions. The work that I do, we do it in a cohesive way and we do it 
with black, white, brown, because on the front lines, there have always been black, white and brown people together. Whether you look back a few decades to the civil rights movement or you look back a couple generations to the abolitionist movement, there have always been black, white and brown people on the front line. The hiccup, I would say, in that is that some people feel like our white allies aren't doing enough to move the needle. But when you read, when you do the history, you read that there were a lot of people in the abolitionist movement, in the, you know what I mean, during that Civil War era type movement that were upstanding white people who went along with the process of slavery and white supremacy on his face, but their basement is outfitted to house 100 people on their way to the Underground Railroad. You know what I mean? And the money that they make from society, a large portion of that is siphoned off and going to the Underground Railroad movement. And so when it comes to that, those who can't necessarily get up and out with this movement to that degree, I don't fault them for it. I get it. You know, I don't necessarily like it, but I can respect the fact that they'd like to contribute to the movement in a different way and at a different level. And the movement needs all of it. That's usually my response to people who say, I'm with you, but I can't say that out in public. Okay, well, help the movement generate some, you know, some friction. We need some, we need some downhill momentum to this. Help us get that. Because if you can clearly see that what's happening isn't right, help us change it because it takes all of them. And friends, in case you didn't remember the name of that enthusiastic person that I'm speaking to, it's Carl Fields. He is active with the Restoring Our Communities, that's ROC, Task Force. Some of the websites you want to check out to follow up on this, and they're all available via our website, nordenspiritradio.org. But the websites include wisdomforjustice.org, and the other website I'll point you to is exporocks.org. Dot org. That's E-X-P-O-R-O-C-S-W-I dot org. Again, the easy way to do it is to come by org, and I'll have links here to Carl Fields and his work. We're going to talk about more details of your work, Carl, but there's some of the other things that I'd like to ask you about that I think will help people to understand your path and what the real path of a real person in the situation is. One of the things that is so influential is who you grow up around and the possible good options and influences and the bad options. Certainly, drugs are there, right? People who've got lots of money from drugs, they are an influence, right? You've got people on the good side, too, like your family's probably involved in church, and they're probably good influences, and they're working really hard from their side. Could you talk about the specifics of your case? And if you could talk about the little detours that you took growing up, in hindsight, you can say, oh, that way, huh? I could have followed this person's lead and been very different. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But could you share a bit of that? Well, the immediate thought that comes to me is, is that, like you said, my community looked a lot like that. My experiences vary from, you know, my mother, my cousins, my, you know, my stepdad being in church and everybody being active to, you know, some of the friends I grew up with, cousins I grew up with who turned into street dudes, you know, turning the guys on the corner with a lot of money in their pocket and a lot of drugs in their pocket, writing their own ticket. Seem more happy than most, seem more free than most. And so, yeah, I saw, I saw both examples, but like you said, the whole feel of there being people who showed the way. And once I landed in prison and I, you know, I was sitting there and thinking through what I was going through, I was like, man, I could have went another way. I was part of this program called OIC back in the 90s. It was a Opportunities Industrialization Center, I believe. And basically they, they hired me on as a, a young guy, even though I was, you know, knucklehead in the thick of it, 
not only did they accept me as I was, but they gave me some insights that I took with me for a long time. A buddy of mine named Gary Cotton, who's still in the work, still around Racine, still beloved old school guy, and his comrade in the work, uh, Denise Freeman, who's also still around. They made these investments in me as a young guy that just, I can't, you know, I, I can't thank them enough because once I got to prison and really reflected on what I saw in the community and what I needed to do to change, they were the examples that I leaned on pretty hard to transition with. And they became people that I knew I had to get in contact with when I got home. And I began to refer to them in the programs that I was teaching and facilitating the peer support work that I was doing as voices in the dark. And I refer to them as that because I've seen a person try and transition without examples to follow once they come to the other side, once they cross that threshold. And I've seen people with examples cross that threshold and have some place to start, have some frames of reference from which to draw. And unfortunately, I've seen guys want to do the right thing, want to transition, and they cross that threshold of, I'm not going back to that way of doing or that way of thinking no matter what, but they don't have any examples to draw from. And what that looked like is despair. It looks real wretched. I've seen a lot of people in moments like that with a lot of pain and a lot of anger on their heart and a lot of pessimistic view, even though they they want their lives back and they don't want to do ugly anymore. So it matters that people in your society, people in your community invest in you when you seem like you're not worthy of investment, because that's the kind of example that we really want people to grow into and to become because we want to set that example when it's hard. It's hard for our society, especially now, to set that kind of example in moments like that when we have people in power, politicians in power who continue to want to want to lock people up and sentence people. I mean, harshly, simply because we're mad at them. We got to stop sending people to prison simply because we're mad at them when we know and it's clear from the evidence that the prison model doesn't work nearly as well as they say it does. If you ask me, it doesn't work much at all. There are thousands of examples of alternatives to incarceration that cost less, but they don't score or gain political points. We got to stop letting people who gain from incarceration determine and decide incarceration. We got to stop that. And that's on us as a people, as a community. Of course, part of the motivation for this is if a politician can say, I'm tough on crime, I'm not going to let them get away with this. There's a certain adulation, respect that goes to people who are tough guys in that way. That's right. Political utility. (laughs) Yeah, sure. It really works well. It does. But it has racism and historical prejudice written all over it. And that's the part that helps to continue to perpetuate the stereotypes and keep the numbers in the disparity category. I don't know how a state like Wisconsin that has, you know, roughly 6% of the population, African-American people, have a prison population of over 40% African-American. How does that happen? You know what I mean? I mean, the conservative numbers, according to DOC site, is something like, you know, 43%, where the more national syndicated numbers of, you know, national studies say that number is closer to 53, 54%. How in any way does 6% of the population represent 50% of anything if it's not delivered in some way or it's not allowed to continue in some kind of way? We have to confront that with clear eyes and a clear message on how to fix that because... 6% of the population can't fix that alone when they've also historically been the ones without any sort of privilege, without many resources and many means. And before that, we were plain and simple commodities. I mean, you know, there's no other way to say it. I mean, in in this country, slavery was not about we're oppressing those people because we don't like them. It was about economics. Prison, whether it's a state that has for profit prisons or it's a state like Wisconsin where it's ran by the state, 
prison has money attached to it. It has resources attached to it. And one of the reasons why around the country and in this state that we're talking about prisons in the way that we are, jails and prisons, is because it's costing everyday people too much, which means those who sold everyday people that as an option, the best option, are now realizing that they can no longer sell people on that. And so we're trying to back out of that by saying we'll release low risk, low level offenders, quote unquote, of which I am neither. So, you know, I take offense to that narrative. But yeah, that whole nonviolent, low risk narrative is not going to get us out of this $1.3 billion budget that prison currently has on an annual basis. We won't get to the finish line in a, in a progressive way, simply trying to cut those numbers in the low risk, nonviolent category. That's not going to work. Everybody should, at least according to the system and their mission statement, should have a, a shot at both redemption and a shot at getting their lives back. And I'm grateful to have mine. And so I decided to throw my hat in to do the work so that everybody can get that shot. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But first, I want to remind folks that you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org with 15 years of our programs for your free listening and download. There's a place for you to comment and rate programs. Please do that. Come to our site. Let us know that you're listening. Let us know what matters to you. Also, there's a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's by your donations. It's not because corporations are underwriting this, and it's not because government's doing it. It's because you, the listeners, make it happen. So please go to northernspiritradio.org for that. Also remember to support your local community radio stations. Local media is so absolutely important in terms of providing viable alternative news that doesn't just fit the national script that's going on. We need alternative voices speaking out. And that's one of the reasons I have Carl Fields here today. Carl is absolutely hardworking and an important person. He's a symbol for me of what exactly we should be doing in this country. That is to say, he did something pretty horrible in his long ago youth, something that was pretty problematic. The word that you've used about yourself, Carl, was knucklehead. Right. I did my knucklehead things too, but I guess I got a pass on it because I'm white. And so I. That's not a thing, though, Mark. That's not a thing. Let a lot of people tell it. That is not a thing. You did not get a pass because you were white. You got a pass because you were worthy of another shot. And that's where the, the, the real word comes in deserving versus not worthy versus not. So, yes. Yeah, right. I'm I'm speaking of the way that some people think as opposed to reality, and I happen to believe in God's grace for everyone. I'm Quaker. I was raised Catholic, but as an adult, I've cast my lot with Quakers, in part because Quakers have a 300-plus year history of getting it right a large share of the time, like with the abolition of slavery, the Underground Railroad, women's equality, and the wrongness of war, but also in terms of the respect that we are called to give to all people. But what I'd like to know from you, Carl, is about the use of prison for either punishment or reform and how that relates to recidivism. Do prisons actually work to encourage reform and reduce recidivism in your experience? I'm not sure what you experienced during your 16 years in prison. Did you actually get education, training, and treatment that gave you options when you got out? The short answer is that I experienced both of those things. But what I also experienced is that I couldn't get the kinds of help the kinds of like tangible resources, academic, educational resources that you would think one should get in a scenario like that because I didn't fit into certain criteria. I wasn't 18 to 24. I wasn't three years or less. I wasn't in the low risk category. I wasn't a nonviolent offender. All of those categories had options that I couldn't access. 
Unfortunately, those options were accessed by a whole bunch of people who could care less about making the most of it because they were there for 19 months. I'll take it. This will help me get home early. Great. And then they were back recidivating shortly thereafter. And what I saw in that was not only at the time that I, a person like myself who was there for a longer period of time, not only did I not have the opportunity to talk to that young person and help them out and help them to see some things beforehand, but I didn't have the kind of access to that programming to use while I was in prison. And so having access to those things would have helped me tremendously, even though I still had time to do. But that's an investment in a person in a way that was long since teased out of the system. You know, there was college in the system by default once upon a time. There were options in the system by default. Programming was a priority, et cetera. But the tough on crime narrative said, why do people in prison get the right to go to college? We need to kill that program. We need to kill that noise. And prisons slowly but surely moved away from programming and access to options to, you know, help get your issue one way or the other under control to where you're going to just sit because prison is punishment more than anything else. And I saw that. But my stroke of luck was that I went to a maximum security prison when I got started in my prison term. And in maximum security prison, the majority of people who were there didn't want to take any sort of program. And so the programs were not full. They, in fact, needed people. So I was able to get a lot of my programming, if not most of my programming out of the way in my first couple of years in prison. And so when I made it to medium security prison, the strong irony there is that the vast majority of people in, in Wisconsin system go to medium security and programs are in high demand. Most people who go to prison, even though they're sentenced to prison for programming, don't get programming because of these ridiculously long waiting lists that I would honestly say State Representative Gorky put out there pretty nicely with his presentation called No Vacancy. So if anybody wants to know more about that and how programming is not invested in, but which is ultimately what could and what would make communities more safer, it would be an investment in the people to bring them back safer. That investment is falls way short of what it should. People on waiting lists for years find myself with the ability, I didn't have to wait for the program. You know, by the race of God, you know, stroke of luck, paid attention, what have you, I was able to get it out of the way. And so when I went to medium security prison, they were shocked that I had programming done and they asked me if I wanted to come and work with the programs. And that's where my whole shift in who I was and how my peers saw me changed. They saw me as a guy in programming and a lot of them who were short term needed to get a relationship course out of the way before they could go to medium security to make some money to come home or uh, anger management course or a restorative justice course or ripple effects kind of course. You know, choices that you make, crime that you do affects this many people in this way to help people to at least see that. And compliance with that meant that you could move to the next custody level. I learned a lot about myself and my own options, helping others get through programming like that. And so, you know, my saving grace was that I found some joy and some powerful insight in helping others. And it became my thing. And it became easier to keep doing that than to do anything else. That could be the norm. And it's not the norm. Unfortunately, we don't invest in that. We invest in more bed space. We invest in more, you know, tools to keep people incarcerated. You know, I hate to be flipping about it, but, you know, riot gear and new batons and, you know, what I mean, new shields and helmets and stuff like that. When we need to be investing in more bed space for programming, we need to be investing in more bed space for alcohol and other drug treatment programs. And when you look at the numbers, it costs fractions to get a person outpatient treatment in the community than it does to send them to prison to take that program. 
But that is more the norm than anything else, because most counties don't have that kind of immediate program to get into. So if you made a mistake and you relapse, most of the time you would have to be sent back to a building, to a facility in order to get that kind of help. And that's that's real unfortunate because that is not a community investment at all. That's a prison investment. Yeah, right. What good does it do to put people in prison? Actually, the way that I got to know about Carl Fields, folks, was because I was reading Mike McCabe's book, Unscrewing America. He's got a few pages in there dedicated to Carl Fields. And one of the things that he says in the book, Carl, was that when you got out and when people get out of prison with a felony on their record, it's not at all obvious that you're going to be able to get any kind of job or a place to live. It's all stacked against you in a very difficult way. That's correct. And he says in the book, and I don't know if I'm getting this right, but, but evidently, even though you were very clearly headed towards something good and never going back, that even you felt troubled by the way that you were thwarted at every turn when you got out. So what I'd really like you to do is explain what it's like and, and you know, if you were actually tempted in that direction. Well, how it came out was that I saw that that looked to be a real option for most people like me. At no point in time did I personally entertain the notion of uh, being that because I made a promise to myself, to my kids, to my mother who, who isn't with us anymore that I wasn't going back. And if that meant I had to just struggle and figure it out here, then that's what it would take. But honestly, I saw my peers taking that road and I had to literally walk that road with them. As I tried to talk them out of that, I was talking myself onto the path that I wanted to be on. You know, keeping myself on the path with my own self-talk, I learned was quite helpful to pull them off of that path. And so, yeah, it was powerful. And to some people that, you know, that certainly translates to mean, well, is this an option for you? No, it's not an option for me because it shouldn't be an option for anybody. Being poor shouldn't mean you have to scrounge to get by. It shouldn't make you desperate. It shouldn't make you have to commit crimes in order to get by and be okay. That's not something that I'm willing to accept for myself. And it's certainly not something that uh, I promote with others. And I ask my peers, but I implore the system to be honest about how its policies are driving some people into that mindset and into that category. And we need to do better. Let's talk about some of those policies. I've learned in the past about the ban the box movement. I've learned that people like you, because you are a felon, you specifically won't be able to vote until 2033. Explain the ways that society pushes you to fail, to be less than equal, because I think actually what society does is it herds people in an unhelpful direction. And yes, some individuals in the herd might be able to overcome that herding and might be able to take a side road, break off from the herd. But in fact, there's a whole lot of laws, policies, and procedures that are pushing people in a direction that we maintain that we really don't want to push them. Well, first of our Band of Box campaign, it's something that a lot of national organizations have been pushing on as well. It's not uncommon to push for what we're talking about. It's not unprecedented to win. Wisconsin is in a category where you can't vote once you have a conviction history, once you have a felony on your record, until you are out of prison and you are done with parole, probation, or supervision altogether. After that, voting is automatic. There are some states that, regardless of a prison sentence or not, you still get to vote. There are only two states in America for which one can do such a thing, uh, which is Maine and Vermont. But they exist because for whatever reason, they believe that the vote is that important. So they never decided to take it. And then there are other states that are in the category of once you release from prison facility, a building of some kind, once you're out and in with society, you can vote. And then you have the category that Wisconsin is in, 
which after you're done with uh, the system completely, you can vote. And then there's a last category where basically you are disenfranchised for life if you have a felony on your record, which is deplorable to me because you have two voices in this lifetime. One is the actual physical voice. The other is that abstract voice. That abstract voice for the sake of this kind of conversation is vote. And in voting, what you lose is the ability to have a say in what your community is going to be like. You lose the ability to speak about who's going to teach your kids and what kind of curriculum they're going to learn from because the school board is an elected position. You lose the ability to talk about, you know, who's going to pick up your trash and how they're going to be funded well versus, you know, scantily because that piece of the puzzle has community money to it and city council deal with that. When you lose the ability to talk about how to make your neighborhood better and where your tax dollars are going and how they're being used, then we get back to a very, you know, fundamental conversation. You know, no taxation without representation. A bunch of white people from way back decided that that was totally undoable and they, they reached real hard for their freedom. And we still to this day respect that. So I'm, I'm just a little shocked that people are shocked that we're reaching for that ability to have that kind of voice and that kind of say. My taxes aren't any less because I'm a felon. I'm not exempt from paying into the, the pool uh, because I can't vote. I get no say in where my money is going and how it's being used. And yet I'm still asked to continue to contribute. And that is clearly taxation without representation. But the bigger part for me as a peer supporter, as an upstream policy change agent, is that we want to bring people back better. The investment in the system as a whole is a restorative justice, supposedly, investment. It is a rehabilitative investment. People don't invest over a billion dollars in the system in the name of public safety and not expecting on some very high level to get some public safety. When you bring people back into community, uh, where is the ritual that restores them to community in the same way they were removed from community? When that's lacking, and it is, you get the ability to bring people back physically but everything else, you can only have the options that we say you can have. Most people I know who are doing well in the community have jobs that they can't talk about. They've been to prison because to do so means that they will expose the company to certain liability or the company gave them a job uh, with the understanding that you only get this job. I'm going to do you a favor and I'm going to hire you despite your record, but I don't want you talking about that with anybody. So what you get is people who ultimately start doing well in society, but they're not success stories because they can't share that success. They can't share that transition with their peers. So they can't help their peers out of a certain way of thinking, out of a certain way of life. But in that, it translates to mean that the system is doing what it's supposed to. Part of a person's recovery package is to come home and be fully engaged. And here's a pathway on how to do that. I want for my neighbors to understand that I care about their property because I care about my property. I care what their grass looks like because I care about what my grass looks like. And when their grass is not looking so great, I'm going to offer to cut it for them. You know what I mean? Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but I say that to say we are denying people the ability to have a strong rehabilitative package when we're cutting off their ability to have a say in their outcome. When they lose the ability to have that kind of say, man, a lot of hope gets lost and a lot of hopelessness continues. You know, I want to ask you a question. I'm not sure, though, you don't seem like an angry person to me, but I think there's a lot of justification for why you would or could be angry. So I want to ask you what you do and that you could be 
just you, Carl Fields, or it could be other people who've gotten out of prison and who are trying to get back in society and they're getting hit from left and right. What do you do with the anger? And is there any particular role that community, religion, spirituality, other parts of society play in dealing with this? I'd love to hear about it. Well, uh, the anger is real for a lot of us. The righteous indignation is there. Clearly, we can prove through the numbers and through a lot of lack of funding that we put our values where our dollars are, you know what I mean? And vice versa. It's just, it's the thing we do. When we decide to put our money where our values are, we will be a lot better off. When we call lack of what it is, then we can start to change that. We have high recidivism rates because we're not heavily invested in bringing people home well. The cost of being able to do that is far cheaper than locking people back up. Honestly, a program in the community that would cost seven to $8,000 is a whole lot cheaper than spending thirty-five to 45000 annually to house a person in prison who might get the programming that they need. We have a situation where our community believes that you mess up at home, that warrants prison each and every time. And it warrants prison because public safety demands it. When the research that DOC has been provided through numerous studies, because DOC has paid for several studies that they ultimately don't listen to. And I can say that pretty clearly and honestly, because politicians have made this a point as well. The Doyle era paid for a study. Another study similar to that was paid for, speaking to the disparities, speaking to how to overhaul the system, both in prison and outside of prison. And most of the recommendations have never been followed. Let me throw a number out at you. 68,000 people. That's the top end number of people who are on parole, probation, or supervision. That number of people, which is quite a few, is lined up with another number of 24,000 people, which is the top end number of people who are incarcerated in some building somewhere. Now, both of those categories are under DOC's purview. And yet somehow, when you hear the name DOC, Department of Corrections, the first thing you think of is prisons. And yet three-fourths of the people who DOC oversees are in the community. So you would think because of that, that there's a heavy investment in that. And there's a heavy investment in keeping people home. But I'm here to say that there's not, not nearly what it could be and not nearly enough. Because of that, DOC has this, I guess you can call it an identity problem. DOC is vastly and majority made up of people in the community, not people in prisons. So why is it that prison gets such a, a heavy slice of that pie? Why does uh, prisons and facilities it's such a uh, resource-heavy priority. Something about that aligns with the political process. And people like myself who are in the community and programmings that somebody like me might need, I'd have to pay for that out of my own pocket, even though the taxpayers put forth money for over 90,000 people. Somehow, I still have to pay for my own programming. Average person like myself is struggling with a job, especially during this era of COVID, especially during the inability to work fully. And yet, it's on me to pay for that. And if I can't, somehow I'm penalized for my poverty. And there are a lot of people in the system who are God-fearing. There are a lot of people in the system who say that the system is working just fine. I say, Expo says, not true. If we really want to do this work, we got to be honest with ourselves. And we have to push politicians to do the job that they were hired to do. And unfortunately, we have a significant amount of people who have been disenfranchised that politicians won't listen to because the system is built in a way that it's only advantageous for a politician to listen to somebody who can and does vote for them. And so my voice has very little power and very little sway to it unless I learn how to be collective in how I use it and learn how to bring people together so entire communities can speak with one voice. 
that's the only way that persons like myself get the opportunity to have a valuable voice according to how the system works currently. I mean, but we aim to change that with our Unlock the Vote campaign and with the fact that community corrections needs to change and the way that they invest is going to change. We have politicians like Secretary Carr who say that's what they want. He needs to be, in my opinion, further empowered by Evers, who ran on this very ticket to say that prison populations will be cut in half. Resources wouldn't be invested differently. I am not seeing nearly as much of that as we should. And my cohort agrees with me. It's the reason why we push as hard as we do. We push the way we do because we want justice, because we want safe community. Who doesn't want a safe community? That's the part that kills me. We all want that. But somehow conservatives tout that as if they own that, like that's their hill and only they can stand on it. And I'm like, what? How do you think that the only people that can stand on this hill and benefit from that point of view is you all? I, I struggle with that. And so when conservatives step out and, and, and to shout out quite a few, because I know quite a few and, you know, a lot of them are righteous people. When they step up and say, you know what, this policy and the way we're doing business right here is not right. We need to change this. This right here is not only costing us too much in terms of dollars, but it's costing us too much in lost humanity. When they step up and say that and do that, man, they have my respect and they have my support. But unless and until they do that, we're on opposite sides of this table and I'm pushing in accordance to my self-interest. And my self-interest says that I have dignity and respect even when I was in prison. And when prison set up in a way to not let me have that or try to strip me of that, all in the name of control, that's got to stop and that's got to change. You know, we've only got a couple more minutes, Carl, and I think there's so many good things that you're doing, and I'd like you to take a moment to just strut your stuff a little bit here, okay? I understand that when you got out of prison, you had the good fortune of connecting up with the Episcopal Church there in Racine, and you started working with the Homeless Hospitality Center there. I'd like you to say just a bit about the different work that you've done and you're doing, including this mayoral task force that you've just been appointed to. I'd like you to just list off a few of those things because, folks, you really want to get to know this guy. What work have you been doing, Carl, and how is the world benefiting from your work? Well, I would hope, you know, righteously, we have a couple different things going on in the network and the organization. But like you said, when I got out of prison, I had this, this weird situation I found myself in. I had got hurt in prison. And so I had back problems and I ultimately needed back surgery. I had a, a pinched nerve slip disc. Because of that, I couldn't work. Most of the jobs that they offer to people like myself are physical in nature. They can care less, felony be damned, they would hire one. But I couldn't take that job. The jobs for which a technical proficiency was needed, of which I have some, they were unwilling to get past that scarlet letter of, you know, felony. Of the few that were willing to look at me, they then had a strong aversion to being willing to work with me after being out of circulation for 16 years. And so I had this thing where I was damned if I do, damned if I don't. And then I was not hurt enough to collect disability. And so I found myself in that purgatory-like scenario for almost a year. And the only reason why I worked for me is because I was part of a network. I was part of the Wisdom Network, and I plugged in with Expo right away. And because, you know, I had support. I had family members who were willing to help, and I struggled. But after nine, ten months, I saw, I said to myself, this is how people go back to prison. Because there's no dignity in this. There's no transition no rehabilitation and, and the ability to uh, leave a person this way and, and think that it's on them. It's not on me that, that my record, regardless of me making a transition, I still can't get employed. That was heartbreaking. I'm a Braille transcriptionist. I'm certified by the Library of Congress and I couldn't make that work for me. I mean, you name it. 
I mean, there were so many things that just shocked me out here, even though I had dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. The only place that would uh, even allow me to volunteer for it was the Episcopal Church here in Racine, St. Luke's, that has the hospitality center program. That was the only place that I could even volunteer without jumping 20 hoops and then lowering myself to a point of losing respect for myself. Ironically, once I got that thing going, I managed to get a, a part-time job of working with the temporary overnight shelter. And once I got to working there, a lot of the same people who worked in the homeless network, they asked themselves often that, you know, and, and later me, how is it that you don't have a job? I said, well, have you heard of this thing called systemic oppression? It, it's a real thing and it, it won't let me in. <laughs> and they were determined. They said, you know what? You're going to have a job if we got something to say about it. And then this network of people who operate like they say, you know, because we have a right to hold a person to who they say they are. I have a right to hold you to the belief system that you say is yours. And when we do that, according to a person's values, and that's how we organize, we organize people in that way and we push systems in that way to be what they say they are. That was something that helped me to get a job. And the only reason why I got a job is because a formerly incarcerated person created an opportunity for me. And the only reason why I met that person is because the expo head, Jerome Diller, introduced me to him because he was an ex-incarcerated person too, and they were connected. And through peer support, I got my first job almost a year out of prison. And after that, the hospitality center had a job coming open. I had volunteered there before. I had some experience in working with the overnight shelter, and this was the same population. In addition to having a background for dealing in conflict resolution and restorative justice, you know, they felt like I could be a good fit, and they surprisingly hired me on. And I've been there ever since, full-time. I work for Expo as well. As much as that's a part-time job for me, it's full-time work because my heart's in it. And I got connected into that because even though I couldn't get a job, I still kept my feet to the ground. I still kept my resume active. I got trained through Gamaliel in community organizing. And so those skills and that mindset helped me to utilize community options in a way that was progressive, that made sense. And, you know, the mayor was fully supportive even in year one. The chief police was supportive in year one. And those supportive pieces of the puzzle came into play because I connected with Wisdom's local affiliate called Rick, which is Racine Interfaith Coalition. That's why those are my people, because they did the work when it was hard. They did the work when, quote unquote, I was this unproven, two decades long felon of a person who could only say I was willing to try something else. I had been untested and unproven, but yet they invested because that's what they're about, because they say that's what they're about. And only through those kinds of investments and that kind of help was I able to become a pillar overnight. I don't know, quote unquote, as they say. <laughs> but yeah, but from that, you know, I've been a part of a couple of different task forces. But this most recent thing is that Mayor Corey Mason here in Racine, he answered the call that Barack Obama put out there a few weeks back. He challenged mayors around the country to address and work diligently to do something about police reform because there was work to be done in that category. And so the mayor decided, yep, we're going to push a couple policies and we're going to convene a board, a task force, if you will, of people to look at policies, to look at options and report out after three months. The mayor called, graciously asked me to be a part of it, you know, background aside. And one of the reasons why I honestly feel he did that is because there's a little known rule in the state constitution that says if you have a felony or a misdemeanor in your convictions history, that you can't serve on the committees that normally operate from the city hall, from the mayor's seat. I can't sit on the police and fire commission. I can't sit on the public works board. I can't sit on any of those boards by state statute, by state constitution, because of the felony on my record. Not simply because I'm on paper and I can't vote, 
but because I made a mistake once upon a time. And so part of making amends with policies that they know were racially driven and current policies that come from slave catchers turned police officers, which is a little known fact that very few people know about police and their history of how they came to be is rooted in that, unfortunately. But honestly, I had a run in with police. And because of that, I lost my freedom for a very long time. So who who else would know how police operate, (laughs) (laughs) especially when I'm somebody who's also come to be a part of solution? So I thought it was a pretty interesting choice. Good choice. There are some who disagree with that. But my honest opinion of that and my pushback to that is let's have a conversation. You think I'm not a good fit on this kind of board? Okay, let's talk about that. Well, we have been talking about it and you've got my vote. Okay, right on. I appreciate so much this work that you've been doing. I really think that some of the best things that happen in the world happen when each of us within ourselves finds out which wrong choices we've been making and then we replace them with good choices. And that includes people dealing with drugs or those people who are white supremacists. We can all make that change in ourselves. Anybody can do something wrong and then turn themselves around. And I think that turning around is one of the things we should be most proud of in this world. I think so. You did it in a major way, and you've dedicated it to making this world a better place, and that makes you number one in my book. So thank you so much, Carl Fields, for doing this good work. Remember, folks, when you want to get a hold of Carl Fields, track him down through wisdomforjustice.org, the links on northernspiritradio.org, along with the link for exporockswi.org. That's right. They can go there. um, They can check out Racine Kenosha chapter of Expo and they can send a direct message. That's my email connected to it. And I'm the organizer for this area down here for Kenosha KR. Reach out. I'm on Facebook under my full name, Carl Fields. They can reach out anytime and we can go from there. Thanks for putting your life to the good service. And thanks for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Indeed. I really appreciate you shouting out my man, Mike McCabe, real good friend of mine. Thanks, Mike. We're going to have Mike McCabe on for Spirit in Action in just a week or two, talking about his book, Unscrewing America. But in the meantime, just remember to send your prayers and your actions and your money in the direction of this kind of excellent work, helping restore our communities. And then come back and we'll visit again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.